Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for December 12th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. And at the current time, I'm flying solo. Um, not sure exactly what's going on with everyone. I do know Tim Shiflett is at a campaign event, uh, so that was planned. Um, but we'll, we'll go from there and see what happens. So I, it's been a while since I've done a podcast by myself um, I want to say I got stuck on the old Southern Sports Universe um, for a period of time, and then of my fellow national podcaster, uh, Judge Kevin Ross, one time told me that this is a great exercise to be on the show by yourself. Um, sometime in the first part of the hour, uh, Craig Pittman is going to come join us on the show. We are so excited to have Craig come back on. Uh, he's been on with us in the past to talk about his book, Oh, Florida. He's also joined us just to talk about Florida politics and Florida, um, you know, just social life. Uh, one of the most fascinating states for so many reasons, not just political, in the United States. But he's going to come on and discuss his book, Cattail, tonight. Um, I believe it was his third book. He's even got a fourth one out now, um, The State You're In. But we're going to talk about Cattail, which talks about the plight of the Florida panther. Um, just a fascinating creature that um, its numbers have, uh, you know, before, of course, um, there were lots of <laughs> citizens running all around Florida. Its numbers were greater. But um in uh, recent years, it's not what it was, but Craig's going to come on and join us here in just a bit. Uh, but until then, uh, we promised you a buy-sell hold on some candidates and campaigns. The first one was Dr. Oz, who is running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. Of course, he um, replaced the, um, in many ways, disgraced Sean Parnell, who dropped off of the uh, Republican nomination uh, process. And so Dr. Oz has filled that um, slot in some ways, although there are other candidates running. Uh, but Dr. Oz is definitely a very different candidate than Sean Parnell. They come from, well, let's just say it, uh, Sean Parnell came from the western part of Pennsylvania. Um, Dr. Oz comes from New Jersey. Uh, there was actually a graphic out today that was quite interesting that, you know, had the map of New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware, and uh, New York, where Dr. Oz works, New Jersey, where Dr. Oz lives, uh, Delaware, where Dr. Oz raises his money. Now, I don't know that, that part of it. Um, and then Pennsylvania, where Dr. Oz is running for Senate. And so to me, um, that's going to be one of the more compelling issues is in the primary, and, and he does have primary competition, and then in the general against Connor Lamb or John Fetterman or another candidate, because there are other candidates, can those uh, people facing Dr. Oz, because um, we're going to assume he gets in the general election at that point, um, can someone make an issue out of 
the residency status, a lot of times called the carpetbagger issue, although carpetbagging usually refers to north and south, not New Jersey to Pennsylvania, but uh, that's the terminology that she used because Dr. Oz is not, you know, from Pennsylvania. And so, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting thing to see. A poll came out this week that apparently was an internal for John Fetterman's campaign, and John Fetterman is not a, you know, stone-cold lock to win the nomination, but if you had to pick two candidates, you'd probably say you put most of your chips on either him or Connor Lamb. And I think at this point in the race, uh, Fetterman and Lamb's numbers are pretty similar. Fetterman was only up two points in his internal poll. Now, if the Democrats have to run in this current political environment uh, right now, you know, 10, 12 months from now, uh, you know, I guess we're in December. Let me do the math. Roughly 11 months from now, the political environment is like it is now. It's going to be tough sledding. That's what that poll shows. Now, we assume that, let's say, the political environment gets a little better. I mean, I don't think they're going to recreate 2018 or recreate 2006 or something. But if it gets a little better, then, you know, that puts uh, the Democratic nominee possibly with a slight lead. And that's with Dr. Oz's um, a political unknown, but a known from his TV show. So it's time to do the buy-sell hold on Dr. Oz. Um, I kind of have to do a slight buy. I don't think they have a better option, obviously, at this point. I do think he's a better candidate than Sean Parnell because what Sean Parnell, uh, you know, was accused of, and you could even say proven if there's enough court documents there, was something that was going to turn off voters. Even voters that agreed with him on some issues were going to have to overlook those issues, and they won't have to do that with Dr. Oz. And I know one thing people are going to mention is the um, medical uh, you know, kind of pseudoscience, and I really don't know how much that'll hurt him. So I think the um, carpet bagging issue is the better attack. But that said, I'm going to give it a buy. I want to now welcome into the Kudzu Vine for I want to say the third time. Welcome back to the show, Craig Pittman. Thanks for having me. Oh, great to have you on, and glad you could get you a little on earlier in the hour. Because uh, sure. I, I don't know if you're listening in, but I'm flying solo tonight, so I know you've <laughs> probably done some radio, and I know you've done some podcasting now, and um, it's yeah. a it's a training exercise. Yeah, well, you know the pod, the podcast. Actually, the podcast we do this uh, uh, Welcome to Florida podcast, Chad Scott and I, and we just go in there and have fun, and uh, occasionally we have we have sponsors too, so <laughs> that's always nice. But uh, you yeah. know, we talk to interesting people from around Florida. Uh, our goal is, you know, uh, 900 new people move to Florida every day, and nobody tells them what they're getting into. So, so we decided we better do that. So we talked to uh, a python hunter, we talked to a gator wrangler, we talked to a nudist. Uh, no, he was not nude when we talked to him, as far as I know. Um, <laughs> we talked to a guy who literally wrote the book on the villages, which was really fascinating. Um, and we just talked to our most recent guest was a guy named Desmond Mead who led the Amendment 4 uh, battle uh, here in Florida to get uh, the civil rights returned to uh, ex-felons. And uh, it, was, it was a fascinating discussion because he, at one point, was homeless and an ex-felon himself and has you know, earned a law degree and now is leading this organization and um, got a MacArthur Genius Grant, too. So it was a, it was a fascinating chat. Yes, I think I've seen the the interview with that gentleman on 60 Minutes. And, um, Craig, I'm so glad you brought up the podcast because I want to say the last time we had you on, you started the podcast just a few weeks after that appearance. I'm sure that y'all had yeah. it in the works. 
but yeah. um, we didn't get a chance to talk about it. So no, you've and, been going and now for it's been going for more than a year. Yeah, it's been yeah. going for, over, for more than a year, and I, we've really enjoyed it. We actually kind of look forward to it. You know, we do silly stuff like we did the history of the Cuban sandwich, uh, and we do serious stuff like, um, uh, you know, we, we did an interview with uh, Julie Brown, who broke the big story about the Epstein case and has written a book about that called Perversion of Justice. So, you know, it's, you know, each week it's a different topic and things, you know, things might go differently than you expect. But all in all, it's been an enjoyable, uh, enjoyable thing to do. And people tell me they like it. So we'll keep doing it until somebody tells us to stop. Yes. Well, I want to tell you something else. Um, I don't know if it was through social media and following you or the podcast, but I know it was you. You have been a huge promoter of the natural coast, which is the center part of Florida and the natural springs. Well, my wife and I yes. took your advice back around Labor Day and visited three. Now, we visited four springs. I went to three locations, I guess you'd say, got into four different springs um, over that Labor Day weekend. And it was just the most relaxing, enjoyable trip. And I want to thank you for that piece of advice. Great. I'm glad, I'm glad you took my advice. The Florida springs were their original uh, the state's original tourist attraction, and you can see why people would come to the springs and use them for, you know, like they were some sort of healing ritual. But really, it was just a great place to re- relax and and swim and and see nature at its best. So, and a lot of them are part of our state park system, which has won four national awards more than any other state park system. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad you went there went there to visit that, and uh, um, it's you know I would encourage everybody to to check out the springs. Oh, yeah, the $4, $6 admission to the park and pass. Um, it's much more affordable than a day at Disney, and also it's not oh, yeah. like the stay-at-a-beach resort. You can stay at a hotel in the inner part of the state. So it's a much mm-hmm. more affordable vacation. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, well, let's let's get into this book. Um, I listened yep. to it a while back, um, mm-hmm. I think maybe over the summer. Fascinating book about the Florida Panthers. Um if you want to give the people an overview and then talk about your motivation for starting this project. Oh, sure, sure. Well, uh, let me clarify. It's not the hockey team. <laughs> it's the actual animal. <laughs> uh, the, 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 uh, the, I have wanted to do a book on Florida Panthers for about 20 years. I, you know, When I was covering environmental issues for the Tampa Bay Times, every time I would write a story about the Panthers, about people trying to bring them back from the edge of extinction, I'd think this would make a great topic for a book. Because the people involved are all kind of weird and interesting, and the the uh, the plot takes a lot of twists and turns you don't expect. And the only thing I need is a is an ending. I didn't have an ending. That was the big thing holding me up. And then finally, about five years ago, I got a good ending, and I said, "Okay, now I can write the uh, book proposal and hope somebody will publish it." And somebody did. Um, the title is Cattail: The Wild Weird Battle to Save the Florida Panther. And it's it's just out in paperback this year, by the way. Um, and it's uh, it, you know it sort of starts off with uh, talking about seeing me seeing this uh, what looks to me to be a statue of a panther uh, in Tallahassee. And then when I got closer and took a, took a better look at it, I realized it wasn't a statue; it was an actual panther that had been stuffed and mounted in a glass case in front of the state archives. And uh, nobody there seemed to know anything about it, but I finally tracked down the story that this was actually the most important panther that had ever existed, that it was Florida panther number three, and that uh, its death sort of set things in motion to rescue the panther from going extinct. And um, so I went – and then I kind of go back and 
tell the story of panthers starting with uh, how the Native Americans actually worshipped them and thought they were a, a revered being. The Spaniards called them lions. The Spanish explorers called them lions. Um, and uh, the, the uh, settlers who came along afterwards for, for uh, the Americans, they thought that they were absolutely fearsome creatures, that they were going to gobble them up at any minute. And, uh, and then, you know, people would hunt them and almost hunted them to extinction until 1958 when the state finally banned hunting of panthers and thought, that's it, we're done. And when, when they were put on the endangered species list in 1972, um, there were some people in the state government who said, you're too late, they're gone, we don't have any anymore. And so the World Wildlife Fund hired this guy named Roy McBride, who was a legendary hunter in Texas, to come to Florida and see if he could find any panthers. And he found one, kind of a scrawny female, and he found signs of some more. And so the state said, well, if they do still exist, I guess we better do something about it. So they appointed a guy who'd never seen a panther to be in charge of the panther program, and he worked with Roy to start capturing these panthers and putting radio collars on them. And it was a, it was the start of them trying to learn about the panthers, but also the start of some other interesting things that happened. And the, one of the most interesting things to me is in, uh, in 1981, the head of the state education department, uh, Ralph Turlington, thought, you know, it would be a good idea if we get kids to vote on what should be our state animal. And so he drew up a ballot and sent it around to the 67 school districts and said, have the kids have an election and vote on what should be our state animal. And he put on there, you know, like um, alligators and manatees and dolphins, and he put panthers on there because the guy in charge of the state program was out looking for panthers then, trying to find where they lived. And every time he did, there was a story about it and with pictures of these beautiful panthers. And so to everyone's surprise, the the state school children selected the panther as this, their pick for the state animal. And the state legislature, when they got to, got hold of it, they were like, there was one guy who was like, no, that's not, no, that can't be the case. Allig- everybody knows alligators are supposed to be the state animal. So he was going to push the alligator and got bombarded with letters and phone calls from people saying, how dare you try and overturn what the kids want? <laughs> and so... So the legislature officially named the panther as the state animal, and I contend that that's sort of what helped save the panther, that them getting that higher profile by being made the state animal meant that the state realized if this animal goes extinct, how embarrassing would that be? That's our state animal. We can't let the state animal go extinct. So, so as a result, they were willing to do an awful lot to try and bring them back from the, the brink of extinction. And I should mention, too, that because this is Florida and because we do things different here, to put it mildly, the way they paid for an awful lot of the research into Panthers is by selling Panther license plates. So if you, want, if, if you want to – there are a lot more license plates than there are Panthers, but, but the, the sales of the Panther license plates has actually helped. So if you want to help the Panther, that's one thing you can do if you live in Florida is get yourself a – Florida Panther license plate because that's how screwed up we are in Florida. That's the way we pay for scientific research is through selling license plates for the cars, some of which then run over the Panthers. So you never never suffer from an irony deficiency in Florida, that's for sure. (laughs) Certainly, and what a great problem to have because the manatee, the dolphin, and the alligator would have all been great choices as well, and they're Uh all very distinctive in Florida. Well, okay, so – Hopefully our listeners have a, a picture of the peninsula of Florida in mind and know where uh-huh. some of the cities are. Yeah. Where are the panthers, like, maybe originally, where do they range from? And then now where's their 
core range and the current times? Well, originally they ranged over the whole south. I mean, back when uh, back when Hernando de Soto was here, and the Spaniards were seeing lions, they were seeing them all over the, the what's now the south, the southern United States. But over time, the panthers east of the Mississippi River have all been kind of eliminated, except for uh, you know the the puma species have all been eliminated, except for the Florida panther. And most of the Florida panthers now are found near Fort Myers, near Fort Myers in the Naples area, in uh, in the Big Cypress Swamp, and that area near the Everglades. And there's some in the Everglades as well. Uh, so the idea is, if you bring them back, one of the things you want to do is try and have more than one population of them. And so you know the the effort is on to try and find them some other place that they can start a new colony. Because you know the one in the one in South Florida. If you put if you put them all in that one place and a hurricane comes through or some other traumatic event or they all catch a similar disease, that wipes out the whole population. So you need multiple populations to make sure there's some genetic diversity there. And so that's been sort of the effort all along. But the 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 big thing that happened when that one panther, Florida panther number three, died was that's when they brought in a veterinarian who started going out with the capture team to capture panthers and saw that they all had these genetic defects because they were all kind of clumped up together and there weren't that many of them. And so that sort of started them on the road of we need to fix the genetic defects in these, in these animals. Yes. I remember uh, you making that point in the book and then you mentioned the other places to look at. And, and uh-huh. when I was listening to it, I'm thinking, cause you know, my youth, I went to the Okefenokee swamp multiple times uh-huh. in Waycross cause that's where some of my family's from. And it seems yeah. like it would make sense. Has any thought been to take the Florida Panthers to South Georgia and the Okefenokee Swamp? There are different places around the South that would be good panther habitat. The problem is political, not uh, scientific. The problem is that those states have all told Florida, we don't want panthers. We don't want them here. We see the problems you have where you've got this wide-ranging predator building its habitat. The panthers come in and gobble up their backyard chickens or their goats, or if they're ranchers, they'll you know eat some of their heifers. We don't want that here. And so Florida has to find another place for panthers to live that's inside Florida. And so that's been kind of one of the one of the problems. And there's a there's a section in there about where they test that out by using some pumas from Texas, some Texas cougars in the north end of the state, and the folks, they use it around the Suwannee River in the sense that sort of springs area you and I were talking about, and people there just were completely opposed to it, and so in the end, they decided it was a scientific success, but a sociological and political disaster, because so many people were against having panthers in their backyards. Yeah, that, that's why I guess I thought the Okefenokee would make sense. Because mm-hmm. if you're there, your head's on a swivel anyway because there's some oh, yeah. sizable alligators. And so you're already <laughs> kind of thinking predators are there. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't yeah. be like, I mean, I understand next to your residential development or your strip mall, you don't want um, the panthers rummaging through the dumpster. Um, but that would be a, a possibility, I would think. Well, and, the, but, you know, not so much the dumpster, but they they would go after your, you know, your cat or your dog if they're in, running loose in the backyard. Because um, they're all they are predators, you know they they kill live prey. That's what they feed on. And um, the I think the thing folks folks don't understand is if you eliminate those natural predators in your landscape, you're going to get some some new ones coming in. You might like even less. The loss of panthers here and and you know uh, uh, pumas in the other states 
has meant that there's the way is free for coyotes to come in. So now we got coyotes all over the place killing cats and so forth. And they're not endangered, but they're an awful lot harder to harder to see and harder to catch up with. So, you know, it, there's and I, and you could even make the argument of uh, you know the Florida Wildlife Corridor, uh, which is an idea promoted by a photographer named Carlton Ward, would run would would allow you to have animals run from the south end of the state all the way up to the Okefenokee, that they, you'd have an unbroken path for them to follow of of wildlife. Uh, places, uh, you know, uh, state parks, uh, state forests, uh, stretches of ranch land and so forth, where wide-ranging animals like bears and panthers could travel and and not be near human habitation. And so uh, I, I think there's a possibility that at some point we will get panthers up in Okefenokee, but they've got to pass through that swanee area to get there. Um, there was yeah. a there was one instance where a panther actually a panther from South Florida actually did make it all the way up to Georgia, and a Georgia deer hunter saw it and freaked out and killed it. And uh, uh, you know he's up in his he's up in his uh, tree stand where the panther was unlikely to get at him, but he just freaked out because he saw this panther and shot and killed it. And uh, the, <laughs> the feds came and said, "You really weren't supposed to do that." <laughs> so he paid a he paid a legal penalty for doing that. Um, yeah, but, never you know, imagine, for that. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, but I mean, you know, so they do, they do travel widely and they, they are motivated to move sometimes. And so, you know, that's why you saw one go that far. Yes. Well, well and I know, um, from my childhood, you know, when I was a child, a little child, an armadillo mm-hmm. was a Texas species. Uh-huh. Now, you know, I see dead armadillos on the side of northwest Georgia all the way almost to the Tennessee border. And if there's some dead in Tennessee, I wouldn't be shocked. They've spread. Um, in Florida, the pythons, oh, they're all over they've Florida. spread. They're all over Florida. You have these, yeah. these, um, now, these animals you, in Florida, spread. We, in Florida, we call them possum on the half shell. <laughs> I've heard that term. <laughs> well, but that's what I was going to say is, now, what keeps the panther from being able to spread like that? What makes that a different species? Roads. R- roads are their greatest enemy. Um, and wherever you, you know, whenever they have to cross a road, they're running the risk of getting run over. The first panther I ever saw, the first wild panther outside of a zoo, was one that had been run over in Hillsborough County outside Tampa. It was trying to cross uh, I-4 between the uh, Lazy Days RV Park and the uh, a, a regional warehouse for rooms to go. And there was some parkland near that, and you figure that it was probably had been in that parkland and was trying to go across the road, and it just it couldn't make it. I think it made it over three lanes, but that fourth lane, something hit it and just kept going. And that's you know that's the case with with all of the panthers is that more of them are killed by being run over than by anything else. The other big common cause of death is other panthers. That male panthers will kill other male panthers for domination in their in their range um but that has been far surpassed by the number that have been run over and you know that's why the the sale of the license plates is kind of ironic yes well and we know that you know florida's population is growing there's road mm-hmm. there's a lot of road traffic because you have your own population but you have possibly the number one tourist destination in america oh, yeah uh, yeah well, you we know, got, with we got 100 people. million tourists we got 100 million tourists coming every year, and um, 
two years ago, the legislature, in its infinite wisdom, decided we needed more toll roads in Florida, that specifically that we needed three of them that were not on the Department of Transportation's list of what they wanted, that they wanted to build a toll road that went south in, all, straight through the middle of panther habitat. They wanted one that went north to the Georgia line, and they wanted another one that went over and connected into um, you know US-19 and the Florida Turnpike. And the um, and, and the governor signed off on that and was like, you know, well, you know, people need roads, which is – he says a lot of stuff that makes him sound naive, and that, that sure did. And, and the, the legislator who started this was the Senate president who had just gotten a – had just met with the Florida Transportation Builders Association, which had given him a pretty big campaign contribution. And then he pops out and says, well, we need to build more roads. It's like, hmm, gee, I wonder who gave you that idea. So um, – um, so th- there was a real serious concern that one of these roads was going to basically wipe out what was left of panther habitat down in southwest Florida. Fortunately, once he was termed out, the support for that particular, particular piece of legislation fell apart, and, and the, the most recent legislature voted to pass a bill repealing two of those three roads. So the one that goes through panther habitat, not on the books anymore. There's still one that talks about going from the northern the northern end of the Florida Turnpike up to uh, Georgia or up to up, you know up in that direction, um, and the people in the people who that would go through their territory, which includes uh, Ocala, where all the horse farms are, are just about as mad as you can be. I mean, they about a thousand of them turned out for the first public hearing on it, and I think 999 were opposed to it. So we'll see how that goes. Yes. Well, probably what they want to make sure is they don't want one of those roads that are really long, like several hundred miles, and you pay like three or five dollars to ride on it. They want one of those those systems where you stop and pay like seventy cents, and then another mile and a quarter you pay dollar fifty, and then in three quarters of a mile you pay like fifty cents, and you don't want any of that. (laughs) Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Is here's what they want. They want to be left alone. They say we live in these rural areas because we want to be a rural area. We don't want development, and we know these roads will bring will bring development. We don't want to be like you know Miami and Fort Lauderdale and Palm Beach. We want to be like Levy County and Marion County and just have farms out here. And that's some several people have told me that we used to live down there. That's why we moved here. We don't want that hustle and bustle, and we definitely don't want these roads coming through. So it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. I, I should mention, by the way, when they were talking about that one road going up to Georgia, I, I, it was the Suncoast Parkway. And I actually called the Georgia DOT and said, did you know that they're planning to build this road? And they were like, you, you're doing what now? <laughs> Nobody had told Georgia the road was coming. <laughs> yeah, and it seems kind of crazy because probably crossing over at Jacksonville, there's I-95, and then there's I-75 between Valdosta and, say, Lakeland. And then you probably have another interstate around uh, Tallahassee, and so I don't know that there's a need yeah. for this major well, road. Between no, there's the not. And, and specifically, there there was a, an advisory committee made up of officials from those rural areas who said, "Listen, we don't want we don't want any new toll roads. We want fixes to Interstate 75 because we think that's what we need. That's where mm-hmm. the problems are. Make those easier to get into and out of." And, and make the make that highway easier to get in and out of. That's what we want the DOT to do. And the DOT hasn't done it because they keep getting orders from the legislature saying, "No, no, we want a new road. We want to build. We want to build this new road that just happens to run by a billionaire developer's property." You know. <laughs> mm. 
crazy. Well, I wanted to ask you something um, before we get into other things um, that's mm-hmm. sort of related. Um, there's been a lot in the news about the manatee population. Yes. Uh, one thing yes. before you talk about that, I wanted to ask you, since manatees are such a Florida thing and you are the person that covers Florida um, issues, are you thinking about doing a manatee book like you did the cattail book down the line? I already did. It was my second book. Uh, Manatee Insanity, Inside the War Over Florida's Most Famous Endangered Species. And, and, you know, at that point, I could not have foreseen what has happened. Uh, Two things have happened in the past uh, five years. Uh, One is that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in in the opening year of the Trump administration suddenly declared that manatees were doing so well that they didn't need to be endangered anymore. They could only be they could be threatened instead. So they didn't deserve the same level of protection that they had had been having since the Endangered Species Act passed in 1972. And they, they took that step against the advice of several scientists who've studied manatees who said, yeah, we don't think they're out of the woods like you think they are. Well, they did it anyway. And then um, there have been a number of toxic algae blooms in Florida waters because our politicians and our regulators have done a very poor job of dealing with pollution. And so – the algae blooms have wiped out the seagrass beds, particularly in one area called the Indian River Lagoon, where there's an awful lot of manatees that, that live and that come there during the winter. Well, with, if there's no seagrass, and so when the, when the winter kind of chills the water and they go into areas like Indian River Lagoon looking for refuge, they have to make a choice. Do I want to eat or do I want to and, – and, and die of cold or do I want to – not eat and die of starvation, but still be warm. So that's that's kind of how their big die-off started this year was they had sought refuge in the Indian River Lagoon, and rather than go back out to look for any seagrass outside where it was too cold, they stayed there and they starved to death. And they're, you know, we're looking at that happening again this winter as well. So uh, we had our, the number of dead manatees this year topped a thousand, which is more than has ever happened before. The, the largest number before was like in the mid-800s. We passed 1,000, and that was well before we reached uh, the end of the year. So the, the, US, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission were debating about some, doing something they've never done before, which is emergency feeding of the manatees. In other words, since there's no seagrass and the seagrass hadn't come back yet, what they're planning to do is, at least as a pilot program, give them some romaine lettuce because manatees will eat that if they're in a zoo or something. So they said, if we can get it to them in a way where they're not associating that feeding with humans, so they don't look to humans for, you know, for sources of food, then we'll we'll try that and see if that works. There's a lot of potential pitfalls, and the the boating community is dead set against this. By the way. Uh, I actually talked to a boating lobbyist who said, uh, you know, we should we should not just not feed them. We should actually euthanize all the weak ones so the strong ones can survive, which like, really? Oh, that's the position you're going to take. OK, I guess you're not worried about being popular. Um, and so, so uh, but they the, and so the feds were kind of dragging their feet about saying yes to this pilot program. But last week they finally agreed. So when the weather gets cold, the, the Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, the state agency, is going to go out and spread romaine lettuce in a few areas and see if that'll 
you know, help tide them over, uh, so to speak, uh, while they're waiting for the weather to warm back up. And we'll, we'll see if it works. I don't know if it'll work. It's strictly a stopgap thing, though. And, and the real solution is to clean up our waterways and so that the seagrass will start coming back. But with the uh, current administration that's now in office, they're much more attuned to paying for cleaning things up than for regulating the people who put the pollution in the water in the first place. Yes. Well, um, I hope that it does work in the short term. I did want to ask a question about that, though. Mm-hmm. Um, how many manatees would you have to catch and survey to understand what constitutes a strong and a weak manatee within the Florida <laughs> population at this moment that's, in time, even to enact this guy's very brutal plan? Yeah, I see that. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a it's very impractical. I mean, even counting them is kind of tough because you know they they submerge, they come up for air about every five minutes, but otherwise they're underwater. Um, so whenever they fly around to try and count them in the winter, uh, one biologist told me it's like counting popcorn while it pops. You know, they they pop up to the surface, but then they go back down again. So maybe you see them, maybe you don't. Um, right now, they think the population I want to say is around. 6,000, 7,000, or at least it was before the big die-off, but now they've lost 1,000 of them. And the thing is, the thing about starvation is that not only are they are the, they not eating, but the ones that survive, it messes up their chances at reproduction. So we're probably not going to see any sort of, uh, you know, nat- normal birth year for the manatee babies as a result of mm. this. So it's, it's just a, it's a, Really bad, serious, long-term problem. And several people have said, including some members of Congress, why don't you put the manatees back on the endangered list? Because clearly, y'all screwed up. Well, they haven't they haven't taken that step yet. Well, we'll see. Yes. Well, we haven't talked about the birds and the bees so far, but we have talked about the panthers <laughs> and the manatees. Um, Craig, we are going to talk about some politics with just a little bit of the time. But before we do that, um, tell our listeners where you would like for them to try to purchase cattail manatee and sanity and really any of your other books oh sure well um if you want a, an autograph copy there's a bookstore here in st pete where they call me up and i go buy an autograph books about every week it's called tombolo books it's t-o-m-b-o-l-o tombolo books and uh, they have a pretty good online presence you can place your order and make sure you specify it's an autograph copy and they'll they'll you know call me up and say hey we you know we've sold them all so i'll go and sign a bunch more uh, but they're available generally from, you know, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, all your favorite, uh, all of those places. And uh, uh, the University Press of Florida actually is running a special right now on uh, the books that it, uh, of mine that they have published. So that includes uh, Paving Paradise, Manatee Insanity, The Sin of Scandal, and my, my latest one, which just came out, called The, the State You're In. Um, where if you order from the University Press of Florida and use the code that you see on their uh, website, you can actually get a discount, uh, and that's good till December 16th. But Tombolo Books is the place to go if you want an autographed copy. And uh, like I said, Cattail is out in paperback now, so um, it's it's reasonably, pli- reasonably priced and makes a good gift for your great aunt Juanita who still dips enough while she irons. <laughs> All right. Well, excellent. <laughs> Uh, information. I hope everybody goes out and, and you know gets these books. I have um, listened to O Florida, listened to Cattail. You gave the information um, that the state you're in is going to be an audio soon, so I can't wait to listen to that and then get you back on mm-hmm. the show. Um, 
So tell us, give us details. When, when do you get to start or somebody else start reading that book? I don't know. I, you know, I don't even know who they're going to get. I, I, I hope it's me just because I know how to pronounce, you know, Yalaha and, <laughs> and the Matt Lachey and some of those uh, very important Florida place names that are in the book. So we'll, we'll see what they do. Um, we'll see how it works out. But yeah, I was, I was very happy with the audio version of Cattail. In fact, we didn't talk about this, but the audio version of Cattail, Chad Scott listened to it, and that's what prompted him to call me and say, "I love your book." I love your Twitter feed. Have you thought about doing a podcast? So that's sort of what led to the podcast in the first place. Yes, and and I've listened to Chad. He's got a great voice too. So if you had to oh, yeah. outsource it and you couldn't do it, maybe you get Chad to read. <laughs> maybe yeah he's, yeah, he's got a very dramatic voice. That's for sure. That, but you know, before this is this is my favorite audiobook story. Before the Scent of Scandal, which is my book about orchid smuggling in Florida, before that came out in audio, the guy who was going to do the reading called me up to make sure he was pronouncing some words right, which I thought was really, really smart. And then when we finished, I said, listen, I, I, I said, I don't mean to be sarcastic or snarky or anything, but is that the voice you're going to use to read the book? And he said, no, this is the voice I'm going to use. I said, okay, all right, we're okay. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. And, and there is a talent to that. And, and the way I oh, consume yeah. audio books, I can – I can tell when someone's um, really good at what they do, and sometimes it's not this deep, powerful voice that's the best. It just it just works for the topic. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you've alluded to your governor a few times, and so we're going to talk about a few political issues. And, and sure. you had uh, mentioned, I think, on social media recently about the governor and his um, online store with golf balls. Uh, tell us a little bit <laughs> about that. It's the, it is the funniest thing in the world as far as I'm concerned. This is hysterical. You can buy the governor's balls. <laughs> That's very much the only way I can express it. His campaign, his re-election campaign has been selling lots of merchandise to raise money for his re-election campaign, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, he's running for president. And, and you know, so they have like a, a flags with an alligator on that says, you know, don't tread on Florida. And they've got, um, you know, a koozie that says, how, how can I drink a beer if I have a mask on? Uh, but the latest thing is they're selling this packet of two golf balls. Each ball has the governor's name on it, and the package is labeled Florida's governor has a pair. And so, <laughs> so as one of my friends pointed out, they didn't think this through because you know what you do with a pair of golf balls. <laughs> you take a scammer all over the place. <laughs> so, so I'm tempted to buy a Buy buy the governor's balls and just hit them all over the golf course for several hours. <laughs> yeah, there are some strange <laughs> items in, in political stores, um, and I guess that goes with them. But the, as, as time goes on, they get stranger and stranger because some candidates just, have this weird one ideas. Just, as much as every time I see that in print, I just crack up because it's like, oh, they're selling the governor's balls. Well, of course they are. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm yeah. gonna, I'm going to buy them and tuck them in my pocket, just like a big developer or a road builder would. <laughs> yes, well, I, I mean, I could, I'd have to have you on to 2022 if we discussed all of the the bizarre and strange and uh, controversial things that oh, yeah. Governor DeSantis is doing. I have two more in mind. Uh, one mm-hmm. I want to ask about is just in the past week or so, um, there's been rumors that Governor DeSantis is going to start back his own military force that is not Uh under the auspices of the United States Armed Forces. Now, 
I will preface that's, that I understand that's, that's that not a rumor. There he was said a force that. before. There was a force yeah. that um that, that, that existed. So he's not just coming out of mm-hmm. this out of whole cloth, but it does seem yeah. quite strange given our moment in time with politics and power and where our democracy stands. Kind of tell mm-hmm. us what's going on. Well, uh, you know, there was this organization that Florida had up until the 1940s. It was a civilian military force, and uh, the governor announced that he would like to revive that civilian military force, that he could see using them in times of emergency, and he thinks that would be a a nifty thing. And, uh, of course, everybody immediately reacted by saying, would they be wearing brown shirts? Um, And so, uh, you know, once again, I'm not sure everybody thought this all the way through, but, you know, I can – on the one hand, I can, I can make the argument that this is a good idea to have people maybe who have military experience, who are accustomed to taking orders, who would be available in the time of a natural disaster, which Lord knows we have those here in Florida. You know, uh, not just a hurricane, but, a, uh, you know, the, another Surfside condo collapse or something like that where you need to deploy people rapidly – and the governor that way doesn't have to go through the military chain of command. On the other hand, we've got the Florida National Guard. They're a pretty professional group. And, you know, the money for them, because that's already in the budget. If you create this new civilian military force, that's something the taxpayers have to pay for. I have to tell you, you know, for a Republican governor, this is the most free-spending governor I've ever seen. He is spending other people's money like it's, like it's going out of style. So, you know, he sent um, Florida law enforcement officers to Texas to help, quote, help out, unquote, with their border issues over there. And Texas, the Texas governor said, well, well fine, but we're not going to pay you back for that. So the Miami Herald, this story where they said, you know how much that cost the taxpayers, that little stunt? $1.6 million and counting, and that doesn't include the gas for them to drive over there. So the Florida Highway Patrol – Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, all sent officers out of Florida to Texas because, you know, I guess we'd solved everything in Florida. So, you know, it, it sure seems like the governor is real adept at spending other people's money to make himself look good and to, and to get gigs on Fox News, which I think is the be-all and end-all for him. Yes, and it's not like a um, boat unlicensed, unreported, has never um, pulled up to the – um, Florida shore. Uh, yeah, you know, to start yeah. to protect your borders. Yeah, I mean, I mean, seriously, the, you know, the immigration problem doesn't start at the Texas border. It starts at our airports. That's where a lot of them come in. And and uh, you know, we have, like you said, we have an awful lot of illegal immigrants coming into Florida by boat. How come they're not going out to stop that? Why don't you, you know, why don't you fix that problem first? <laughs> Although, don't give them ideas. They might want to build a wall, but if you're talking about planes, they might build a dome. Um, yeah, <laughs> over the state. I'm sure that'll do wonders for tourism. Well, um, like I said, we can talk <laughs> forever, but idea. I did want to ask about one more issue that came yeah. up recently, and this may not be the governor, um, but it, it is something, and it's a little more serious than I think we've talked about so mm-hmm. far. In the past few weeks, the anti-bullying page, including the LGBTQ mm-hmm. page yep. that was on the anti-bullying page, has been taken off of the um, – you know, the, the Department of Education Florida site. Now, of course, I want to make a joke about if y'all solve bullying, but it's it's not a laughing matter. I mean, bullying yeah. is a 
really, really serious problem that has it's a serious. lot of consequences into it's adulthood. Led to some suicides, yeah. What, what's going on there with the Florida Department of Education just taking that information off their website? I, I, I think two things. One is um, the governor has realized that information is power and that he can hide information or remove information that he finds unpleasant. And so uh, even though we have a government in the sunshine law in Florida, we have had an awful dearth of sunshine in Tallahassee ever since he took office. Um, the other thing that, that's going on is that, uh, you know, there's a sort of a, how can I put this, a, a sort of a doctrinaire mindset to the governor and the folks he has hired that we're, you know, like all the judges are members of a particular uh, uh, branch of the Federalist Society. And, you know, everybody else he appoints pretty much has to pledge allegiance to Ron DeSantis and and his conservative ideology, his pro-Fox News, anti-everything else ideology. And so I think they took that down because they didn't want the people who wouldn't routinely be involved in bullying being accused of bullying anymore. And, um, you know, if you take away those resources, well, the... Uh, I'm hoping somebody gets a chance to ask him about it, although um, they may not get a, they may not get a, much of an answer. Uh, the other day, the governor held a press conference to talk about all the money he was spending to combat rising sea levels in Florida, but he never used the word climate change. And when a reporter asked him about global warming, he blew up and said, oh, global warming, that's something a bunch of leftist people use to try and control folks. And it's like, well, wait a minute. We, you're, you're trying to fight global warming but you don't believe it exists. What you know? So I'm not sure we get a straight answer on him, out of him about this, even if we get the chance to ask. Yes. Well, I mean, like I said, there's so much material there, and there's so many races in Florida, mm-hmm. um, and we're not going to get discussed at all tonight. But I definitely want to get you back on in the future. We're going to have to talk yeah. about the state you're in. We're going to have to mm-hmm. talk about um, more Florida politics uh, somewhere down the line. But for tonight, uh, we've talked about the books, we've talked about the podcast. Tell our listeners um, where they can follow you on social media or anything else you've got going on that we hadn't shared yet. Oh, sure. Well, um, the, uh, uh, my Twitter feed is at Craig Times, C-R-A-I-G-T-I-M-E-S, all one word. Uh, I'm on Instagram as Craig Pittman 78 um, and uh, as I mentioned, I do a podcast every week with Chad Scott. We call it Welcome to Florida, where we just we basically you know we just find we find entertaining, interesting people and talk to them, sort of like you do. And then um, uh, you know I do I do a weekly column for the Florida Phoenix on environmental issues, and uh, um, and I'm I'm freelancing stories to the various magazines too. Uh, I've got. Uh, I got one that just came out in Flamingo Magazine, which is the only statewide uh, Florida history and culture magazine uh, about the 500th anniversary of cattle ranching in Florida. Cattle ranching actually started in Florida. You know, we have this image of the American cowboys, you know, Gary Cooper and and uh, uh, Marshall Dillon, and they're actually vaqueros who spoke Spanish. Um, and uh, uh, and you know, I've got my my cattail out in paperback and the state you're in which just came out in hardback so and those both make great christmas gifts so y'all go out and buy them yes and and i knew about the cattle ranching from listening to oh florida i tell you when i go down to florida i'll tell my family all these facts 
And they're like, where do you know all this? And, you know, of course, I have to tell them, like, I listen to, like, the guy that knows more about Florida than anybody else, uh, Craig Pittman. I mean, some people's, you know, favorite Floridian is Mickey Mouse or Deion Sanders. Mine's Craig Pittman. Well, thank you. I'm honored. I'm honored. (laughs) I'll try and uphold that trust. Well, by never what, running for office. <laughs> well, Craig, I'm going to keep reading the things you write on social media. I'm going to, you know, hopefully listen, if not read the state you're in soon. And then we're going to get you back on the show um, here sometime in 2022. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. All right. And, and a Merry good Christmas. to you. Yes. All right. Well, Merry Christmas to you. All right. That was Craig Pittman. Um, definitely. If you have not uh, read or listened to his books. He is one of the most fascinating writers. I mean, just, oh, Florida just really gives you a, a good overview of the state history from a, um, you know, kind of humorous perspective. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, you got a biology lesson tonight with Cattail and um, Manatee Insanity. So um, I cannot, you know, uh, endorse the work of Craig Pittman more. Uh, follow him on social media, and then, of course, listen to his podcast as well. Um, but tonight, um, we're a little early, but that's okay. We had an incredible interview with Craig. We talked a little bit about did the buy, sell, and hold uh, on Dr. Oz. And so what we're going to do is we're going to hold our Georgia conversation until we're back at full strength in the new year, because I will go ahead and tell you, this is our last show of 2021 Um, We're going to go live again on the evening of January 22nd. We already have our guests lined up. Um, Andrew Gumble, he wrote, he's an author from Santa Monica at Byway, or actually Great Britain, and then now lives in Santa Monica. He wrote a book about Georgia State University and how they have just been so academically successful in transforming that university. Um, we're going to have Andrew on the show to talk all about his book, um, Don't Lose That Dream. Uh, or Hold on. I'm listening to it right now, and let me find the right number or the right uh, title about that Georgia State University book, Won't Lose This Dream. Um, and so we're going to know all about the, I guess it's the ninth largest university in the country. Uh, and then also we'll go over um, – our buy, sell, and hold on Stacey Abrams and David Perdue really talk about that Georgia governor's race. When we start out 2022 when Catherine and Tim rejoin the show. But until then, been the Cozy Vine. Not everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force?